What if one of the candidates for president this year was campaigning on the prediction, on the sure and certain promise that our country, along with all the nations around us, would be overrun, decimated, and dominated by a new military superpower? That everyone who told you otherwise was lying that the great majority of our political, business, military, and religious leaders, along with a large part of the population of our country as a whole, would be loaded up and transported to live in the faraway land of this conquering nation. And this situation would continue for generations. And one more thing, that God had decided this would be so. While not the message of a current presidential candidate. That was exactly the message of a prophet to God's chosen people, Israel, living in the southern kingdom of Judah in Jeremiah's day. This was the judgment of God on his repeatedly sinful and rebellious people for their idolatry and their unwillingness to come to the Lord and to love him and serve him. But even if you were one of the faithful few in the land of Judah in those days, the same fate was about to befall you. You too would be called to be taken from your home and ultimately were taken from your home to live in Babylon. Babylon. The city that the book of Revelation uses as the embodiment of sin and evil. So the lesson we will see today from the book of Jeremiah, from chapters 27 to 29, you can turn there in your Bibles, is that God sometimes decrees in the course of history difficult days and hard times which His people cannot welcome enthusiastically, but in which He calls them to live faithfully. Before we get to our main passage today in Jeremiah chapter 29, let's nail down the context by looking at some verses in the beginning of chapters 27 and 28. Point one in my sermon today is God is sovereign over all, Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 1 through 7. He is sovereign over all, including world affairs and politics. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Well, it's almost Halloween, and this is quite a get-up, quite a costume for Jeremiah to put on. He is to put on a yoke, a yoke around his neck, the kind of yoke that is used on cattle or oxen to pull the plow through the field or the wagon down the road. And Jeremiah's yoke has leather straps to hold it on. The picture is that of a beast of burden serving his master. With this yoke on, Jeremiah is tasked with having a little chat with all of the envoys from the surrounding nations that have come to Jerusalem to see King Hezekiah. Look at verse 3. Send word to the king of Edom, 
the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the, the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us what they were there to talk about. Likely, they're talking about the threat from Babylon. The text doesn't tell you if Jeremiah made the rounds and, and met with them one-on-one or, or if he found them all gathered together in a conference room in the king's palace. But the scripture does tell us the message that Jeremiah delivered as God's mouthpiece starting in verse 4. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Jeremiah says, The Lord God, by His mighty power, made everything. That is how limitless His power is. And He will do whatever He wants with it. He is in charge. He does as He pleases. Also note that while He is the Lord of hosts, the the God of angelic armies, He is also the God of little, seemingly insignificant Israel. Israel is a small speck on the international scene, at least in comparison to the great Babylon. Babylon is the superpower of the day. Now that Jeremiah has reinforced that this is a message from the all-powerful God, and in verse 6, the big God of little Israel, he delivers the rest of the message in verse 6. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Jeremiah tells them in verse 6 that the Lord God is in charge of who rules and who reigns. The Lord is sovereign over politics and who will have earthly power and who will not. And now, as we will learn for the next 70 years, Babylon and their king Nebuchadnezzar will rule the land of Israel and their people and their resources will serve him. Notice what expression is used by God to describe Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon here. He is my servant. He is God's servant. This Nebuchadnezzar, the king who for 43 years used slave labor to build a magnificent ancient city called Babylon. A city called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. His vast slave army constructed the 56 mile long wall that surrounded the city. A wall so wide that chariot races were held on top of it. The king of Babylon is called my servant by the Lord. The same expression is used in the New Testament by Paul to talk about the governing authorities in Romans 13 verse 4, where Paul says this to the Christians in the church of Rome about their rulers. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And who was the ultimate Roman ruler when Paul wrote these words? The emperor Nero. One of the greatest persecutors of Christians of all Roman empires. We'll come back to Romans 13 a little later. But notice one more thing before we leave Jeremiah 27. There's a little hint of hope in the sobering message that we find in verse 7. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. When in God's timing, the time of Babylon comes, when it comes to an end, this great powerful nation will be conquered and humbled by another and made themselves slaves. The rule of Babylon will not last forever. You see, Babylon is in God's hand. He controls them. And here in Jeremiah 27, God is using King Nebuchadnezzar for a time to accomplish his own purposes. But God's sovereign control over all, over all kings, all nations, their rulers, will continue throughout all time. And just as the time for the land of Babylon came, so too it will come for all nations, even for our own. For as God's people, our hope is not ultimately in earthly nations or rulers, but finally and completely our hope is in God's Son our King Jesus Christ, and in God's kingdom over which King Jesus will reign forever. That brings us to point two. When things look bad, beware of smiling faces and happy talk lies. Jeremiah chapter 28, verses 1 and the rest of the chapter. For there are those, when things look bad, who will come with a happy message, masquerading as the prophets of God and pretending to give the promises of God to his people. The judgment of God upon sin always brings out those who want to put a smiley face on sin. We want to put a happy face on bad circumstances. And so Jeremiah's message in chapter 27 does not go unchallenged for long. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. In that same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. You see, there had already been a first wave of exiles hauled off to Babylon two or three years before this. 
And according to the prophet Hananiah, the false prophet Hananiah, this will all be over in two short years. When the Lord will bring an end to the suffering of God's people and return them to Jerusalem and to the promised land once again. And while Jeremiah would love all this happy talk to be true, and that the suffering of his countrymen would end, he knows that's not going to happen. For Jeremiah is well acquainted with the repeated and ongoing sins of his people. And he also knows the holy righteousness of God. That sin must be punished. And in the face of such realities, to put a happy face on such ugliness does not match up with the message that Jeremiah had been given by the Lord. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet for a reason. Because by and large, he doesn't bring good news. Look at verse 5 of chapter 28. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Essentially, Jeremiah says, when confronted with this kind of happy talk message from a supposed prophet of God, don't believe it until you see it. But Hananiah doesn't heed the warning. And Jeremiah has the last word. Look at verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah, the prophet, went his way. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go. Tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, You have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given to him even the beasts of the field. In other words, Hananiah, you can pretend to break my yoke off of Israel and the other nations, but it is not so. My yoke is still there. They will be beasts of burden to Nebuchadnezzar. They will serve him. Verse 15. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. 
And you have made this people trust in a lie. One of the worst things a preacher, a teacher, a prophet of God can do is spread a lie before his people. Jeremiah, God himself, is convicting Hananiah of preaching a lie. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. The message of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 regarding false teachers sounds somewhat similar to the situation in Jeremiah chapter 28. 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 to 5. Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. Another translation says, Wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, to suit their own desires, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Note that enduring suffering and hardship is part of Timothy fulfilling his ministry. A repeated emphasis of the New Testament. You saw it in our scripture reading this morning from 1 Peter 2. It's like our master, Christians will endure suffering. Suffering does not mean we are lost and abandoned by God. It's a part of of following the example of our Master. Don't let the smiling faces and happy talk of those who masquerade as spokesmen for God lead you astray. They preach health and wealth with no suffering. They preach a happy life with no repentance from sin and no sacrifice for sin. They teach a reliance upon your own works, your own best efforts, and not a trust in Jesus Christ and the grace alone that is available through Him. The list could go on and on. Like Hananiah, they regularly commit spiritual malpractice on the people of God. That brings us to point number three. Divine direction during difficult days. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. Follow along with me. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah is sending a letter. He sends a letter to encourage them, to comfort them, and to do so realistically. 
In chapter 29, we have many of the Israelites already taken captive and exiled to the great pagan city of Babylon. This exile took place over a period of about 11 years. Um, Jeremiah's letter was towards the front end of this exile. Jeremiah's letter was sent before the actual destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the destruction of the temple along with it. But these Jews are taken to a place they could never have imagined. Taken from the land God promised to them, they were removed from Jerusalem, from the Lord's own holy capital city, the home of the one temple of the one true God, and taken to a place where they are living in the pagan capital of the world at that time. And while it's a place of beautiful architecture and buildings, it's, it's a place of sophisticated society, of great learning and extravagant wealth, they are living there under the thumb of a pagan king, living in a land that is foreign to them, among people who are unholy, ungodly, people who worship many, many false gods. And for them... There doesn't appear to be any hope of returning home, at least not anytime soon. So how should they live as the people of the one true God in the midst of a pagan culture and under the rule of a pagan king? Well, the prophet Jeremiah is about to tell them. And he's telling all this in light of Jeremiah 27 and 28. He's telling them this in light of chapters 27 and the fact that God is sovereign over all. Over all people, over all nations, over all political and religious rulers, over everything. And he's telling them this in light of chapter 28. And the fact there will be false prophets, competing voices, foretelling the future, and giving advice and direction on what to think and how to live. All these different people wanting you to listen to them and follow their lead during the hard times. And I would tell you, the people that tell us these kinds of things in our day do not always come dressed in religious garb. They're on your television every day. They're on your phone. They're in the blogs you read. They're in the movies you watch. They have a message they're trying to get across. And for the most part, it is not the message of the Word of God and the Lord. Well, here in chapter 29, Jeremiah gives direction in four specific areas of life for how to live as exiles in a pagan land. First, he tells them how to go about living their daily lives in verses 4 through 6. Look at chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You can imagine what they were hoping to hear from Jeremiah. They were hoping that his letter 
would have other words. Words about the near ending of their exile. Words to just wait a little bit longer. That's what the false prophets were saying. Instead, the word they hear from Jeremiah says they are to engage in the normal activities of life. They are to make their homes there. They are to grow food there. They are to get married. They are to have children. They are to keep on living and doing the normal things of life that they have always done. The implication is this is going to be and last a very long time. Three and a half generations it will last. Seventy years it will last. That's more than a lifetime for many people in this ancient community. Well, the second of the four areas he addresses is found in verse 7. He tells them about their civic duty in this pagan culture. Verse 7 reads, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now this is truly revolutionary. Did he really say that? Pray for Babylon? Pray for this wicked pagan empire? It's likely many of these Jews are praying for Babylon's complete and utter defeat, given that they were the ones responsible for uprooting them from the promised land and moving them to this Jewish ghetto, this kind of refugee camp in Babylon. But that is not what the Lord says. No, the Lord says they are to pray for Babylon. That is what they are unequivocally and without reservation commanded to do. And God, through Jeremiah, generously tells them why at the end of verse 7. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah says to pray because that's where you're going to live. And to intercede before the Lord on its behalf is your duty before him. Now, the Hebrew word translated welfare here in our English Bibles is the Hebrew word shalom. A very familiar word if you have known Jewish people or been exposed to Jewish culture. The word shalom means peace. And it is used by Jews to both greet people and to bid them farewell. But it means much more than just peace or hello or goodbye. Shalom in its fullest meaning refers to a complete peace. It is a state of contentment, of well-being, of, of harmony, of, of, of total peace. So let's read verse 7 with the word shalom instead of the place welfare. But seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom, your welfare, your peace. This advice is echoed and expanded on in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you will see praying for the welfare of the place and the rulers of where you live is commanded by the apostles as well. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Peter picks up this idea of being in exile in a place that is not your true home in 1 Peter 2 verses 11 to 15 from our scripture reading this morning. Only here he is not addressing Israelites living in Babylon but Christians living in the pagan Roman Empire. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of your visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Now there is an exception to this. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and the apostles are being told by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to stop preaching the gospel, stop proclaiming Jesus Christ. And Peter's answer to them is, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. But by and large, the general pattern, the general advice, the the general command of the New Testament is to submit to those God has placed in authority. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, states this most explicitly in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Let that sink in for just a minute. There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Well, who is the most famous Israelite who actually put this advice from Jeremiah 29 into practice? Well, it's the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel was a true prophet of Israel living in the land of Babylon towards the end of the 70 years of exile. About 50 years after Jeremiah, a little over 50 years after Jeremiah sent this letter to the exiles. Daniel lived his normal everyday life among the pagans in Babylon. Daniel went to Babylonian schools. Daniel learned the language of the Babylonians. Daniel took a Babylonian name. Daniel even served in the government, in the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
But what did Daniel, Daniel not do? Daniel did not abandon his God or compromise his faith by defiling himself with the pagan religious practices of the Babylonians. Daniel was even willing to die in the lion's den if that's what God allowed rather than follow the religious practices of the Babylonians and worship Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah even comments on this aspect of the intersection of civil and religious life. For while verse 7 tells the Israelites in Babylon to pray for the welfare of the city where they live, verses 8 and 9 address religious compromise, false prophets, and false teaching. Look at verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. You see, there is a danger in living in such close contact with pagans. For in the culture of Babylon, as there was in the culture of Rome, there existed the strong pull to not only respect their leaders, but also worship their civic and governmental leaders. In King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in Jeremiah's day, and in the Roman Empire in the days of Jesus and the apostles, the king or emperor was not only the head of the government, he was also the head of the religion of the empire. And as such, was to be worshipped. This the Israelites in Babylon could not do. This the Christians in the Roman Empire could not do. Like the Israelites who were exiles in a place that was not their true home in pagan Babylon, we too, as Christians, are, according to Peter, exiles in a place not our true home. In our case in the United States of America. It is our temporary home. It's the place we reside until the Lord calls us to our true and heavenly home. That's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls us ambassadors for Christ in this world in 2 Corinthians 5. Ambassadors are people who represent their nation, their president, their king in a foreign land. We are exiles. We are ambassadors for Christ. Well, third, the next specific thing Jeremiah tells them about living as exiles and strangers is to hold on tight to your future hope. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has a sovereign plan with a glorious future and a hope for His people. For His people in exile. But it is a delayed hope. Not a present or immediate hope or deliverance. 
Think for a while about what the wait of 70 years meant for the Israelites in exile. Being removed from the promised land of Israel meant these people were cast completely adrift from all the earthly things on which they depended and relied upon for their well-being. They were no longer a nation with a land. It had been taken away. They no longer had a king. He would soon be killed. They no longer had an army. It had been defeated and destroyed. They would soon no longer have a temple. It will be destroyed. Their personal land, their livestock, their possessions are largely gone. Their earthly security, the things of this world that they held on to dearly, were for all intents and purposes non-existent. To who and where could they turn? The Lord is the only place they could turn as exiles. The Lord had a plan for their shalom, for their complete peace, for their well-being, for their welfare. That brings us to the fourth thing he tells them about the immediate challenge they face. And that's in verses 12 to 14. Jeremiah 29, verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You see, the answer to the question of who or where they can turn is found in verse 12. It is the Lord. It is there where they will find their shalom, their complete peace. The Lord God will bring them complete peace. Not the things of this world. Not the false promises of the false prophets. And I want you to notice something that's not apparent in your English translation regarding the first word of verse 12. That word, then. Your English translation is doing some interpretation for you here because a literal interpretation of that first word of verse 12 also carries the idea of and. Then makes it sound like this will only happen after the 70 years of verse 10 is completed. But put the word and at the beginning of verse 12 and now you capture the complete idea of the verse better. And you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You see, this calling on the Lord is to be done by them now, as well at the end of 70 years. In fact, almost all of the people who are receiving this letter from Jeremiah will be dead at the end of 70 years of captivity. Jeremiah is calling on these exiles living in Babylon to begin calling upon the Lord now. They can make the right response to him now. Not just 70 years from now. The Lord is with them now. He was with them in their present trial and difficulties. They can turn to Him now. Come to Him now. Pray to Him now. He will hear them. God is in effect pleading with them to call upon Him with all their heart and with all their will and with all their energy. And this sovereign God guarantees 
he promises that he will take them from exile and take them home. A promise he fulfills 70 years later and is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. A promise he will ultimately fulfill with the coming of their Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will bring them a complete and true peace. Now this passage has to do with a focus on daily life, on civic duty, on future hope, and the immediate challenge of spiritual life for the Israelites in exile. And for us Christians, we who are in exile in this temporary home, where do we turn for spiritual direction and comfort in difficult days? When faced with minute-by-minute updates on our phones and 24-hour news with regard to real problems like global terrorism, crime and unrest in our streets, with personal struggles like challenging relationships between husbands and wives and family, as well as life-altering and life-threatening illness, and yes, even when faced with difficult and sometimes confusing political choices. Where do we turn? Where do we take our refuge? What wisdom do we seek? Well, I have good news this morning. God sovereignly controls all of these things. All of these troubles have one root cause, and that root cause is sin. Sin is our problem individually, and sin is our problem in our relationships and in our world. And God has sent His Son to save us from sin. And since He is sovereign, And since He loves us so much that He sent His only unique Son so that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life, we can trust Him when He tells us to make supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people, particularly for kings and governors and presidents and mayors and all who are in high positions. Knowing that doing so will lead to a peaceful and quiet life that is godly and dignified in every way. We can trust Him for that. And knowing that our sovereign and loving God through Jesus Christ will use us as His ambassadors to be His witnesses in the midst of these troubling circumstances as difficult as they might seem to us because He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Our peace, our ultimate peace is found in Jesus Christ. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus told his disciples, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. As God's people, as his children, our hope is not ultimately in earthly nations or rulers. But when all is said and done, finally and completely, our hope is in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and in God's kingdom over which, after all earthly kingdoms are done away with, King Jesus will reign forever. 
The same Jesus who was with us always, even to the end of the age. When He will take us, we who are in exile in this world, to our true heavenly home, to the place He has prepared for us. For in Jesus we find our true Salome. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your exiles, we praise you for your promises. We praise you for your promises of of peace, of of deliverance, of salvation in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our true shalom. I pray, Father, that in difficult days, when things seem confusing, when we don't know what to do, we would take refuge in you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus told us to not let our hearts be troubled, to believe in God, to believe also in him. For he has gone to prepare a place for us. In this world, there will be trouble. But praise God, we have Jesus Christ with us, beside us, holding our hand and not letting go. Let us be his ambassadors and his witnesses to this world in difficult and troubling times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.